You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. The quote is pretty scary, hey? Are you an anxious person? Are you an angry person? I had some moments of anger this week. Are you a controlling person? If so, pay attention to what you've been paying attention to. I don't know how many of you have seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Maybe hands up, how many of you have seen that? What an incredible documentary. One of the main ideas that shook me in this documentary is that when you don't have to pay for a product or a service, it's because you are the product, right? Um, in other words, Facebook, YouTube, social media, they have an agenda. They may not cost you financially, and I know, you know, there's the subscribers, you know, with their, their YouTube channels and all of that, but in general, these things don't cost you financially, but that's because it comes at the cost of your attention, your time, and ultimately your soul. Your attention is being bought, and there are specific algorithms, as Comer was saying, designed to manipulate you based on your preferences and ways of thinking to give more and more of your time and your attention away. So what we give our time and attention to is no small matter. It's absolutely crucial. So again, the question I ask you as we begin this series is, what are you beholding? And a follow-up to that, how is that shaping you as a person? Well, this morning, I want to invite you to behold the Lamb of God with me. And as we do so, we are invited to become like him. And here's my big idea as we behold the Lamb who was slain for us. We are to follow the humble example of the Lamb who was crushed before he was crowned. We are to follow the humble example of the Lamb who was crushed before he was crowned. So I've got three points this morning. Behold the meek lamb, behold the sacrificial lamb, and behold the victorious lamb. So you're ready for three sermons in one. All right, here we go. Behold the meek lamb. In the passage that was just read by Kim, we see John the Baptist denying claims that he is the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet who would be like Moses that was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. Instead, John the Baptist is the forerunner for the Messiah the one who's predicted in Isaiah 40, verse 3, who would be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John's message and his his entire life was one of embodying, don't behold me, I'm pointing you to the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. He's preparing the way for Jesus who fulfills not Isaiah 40, but Isaiah 53. Listen for the the crushing and the lamb imagery in Isaiah 53 verse five and then seven. Says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So in this passage, in this messianic prophetic passage, we're presented with a scene of a lamb, innocently, perhaps even obediently, following its master to be slaughtered. 
And as it's sheared of its wool, it's silent, compliant, meek. How many of you guys have cats? Have you ever tried clipping their nails? Man, let me tell you, I have a cat. His name's Marmalade. He's awesome. So great. Most of the time, pretty meek and mellow. But like, man, it's a thing when we have to like clip his nails. It's like, Jenny, okay, you grab Marmalade. I'll go get the towel. I'll get the clippers. Make sure he doesn't see. Wrap him up tight in the towel, you know, and then he's got to like expose his one paw or whatever. You clip the nails and he's meowing. He's like, you know, trying to like wrestle out of there. He's not meek, right? And then once we finally do it after, you know, 15 minutes, we got to like get the temptations. Anyone got the temptations, right? The little snacks or whatever, to kind of like bribe them into this eventually and get used to it. Yeah, not silent, um, not meek or compliant as he's getting his nails clipped. But here we are presented with the lamb who is meek, who is compliant as he is shaved before he is slaughtered. Jesus was the meek lamb. Can you think of a more innocent and non-threatening animal than a lamb? In the garden, as you'll hear more about in two weeks when we do behold the garden, Jesus said, Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. He obediently went to the cross like a lamb going to the slaughter. And at his trial, as you'll hear more about in three weeks when you do behold the trial, Jesus remained silent and didn't protest his unjust sentence of crucifixion. Furthermore, Peter records When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, just like a lamb who is silent before its shears. Now, here's the thing, is I think we we have like these bad images of like what meekness is, right? Like we just kind of see the meek as maybe like passive or like pushovers or doormats, um, anything but that. Like in fact, the only two Bible, oh, sorry, the only two people explicitly described in the Bible as meek are Moses and Jesus. So in other words, like you're talking about the guy who killed the guy with the rock, the guy who like smashed the Ten Commandments, like smashed the rock to make the water come out. Like that guy was described as meek. Yeah, somewhere along the lines, like he was described as meek. And Jesus, the guy who was flipping tables and making a whip, yeah, meek as well. So, okay, Moses, sinful, some of the stuff that he did, absolutely. But somewhere along the lines, this guy was meek. And so the point is, our ideas of what meekness is, probably wrong. Now, maybe you're sitting here being like, okay, like I need a definition then. So glad you asked. Here's one right here. Um, This is from the Blue Letter Bible, which is just an online resource kind of study tool. Uh, It's free as well. This is what they say. Uh, In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trusting God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. And so meekness is what? It's about steadfast, unwavering trust in the character and the sovereignty of God that compels you to leave things in God's hands rather than taking them into your own. The Messiah came not in the muscular power of the world, but in the meek service and love that characterizes the kingdom of God. This is so upside down. The thing is, we're so tempted by the power that the world has to offer, aren't we? 
just look around. In our age of Instagram and the age of the spectacle, self-promotion and image management is the name of the game. And we've learned this, right? We know how to market ourselves and jockey for position. We curate our social media profiles to show the highlight reels of our lives, and we publicize the things that gain us social credit, admiration, and status, and minimize the things that taint our reputation. We seek relevance and influence. We live in a culture that is results-driven and applauds entertainment and performance. But when the visible is what's celebrated and noticed, the invisible becomes unimportant. So we jettison the need for development, the need for character formation, the need for process, all so that we can have a piece of the public eye or the world stage. And we wonder why we're seeing so much leadership failure. Listen closely. The secret of the kingdom is that it's the unseen that counts. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord doesn't care if you've got the admiration of people or success in the world's eyes, but he cares a whole lot about who you're becoming, about the condition of your heart. Is it soft? Is it hard? Is it resistant to his spirit? Or is it moldable clay in his hands? And the Lord, by his grace, uses the unseen hidden places to grow us root out sin, and refine us. Now here's the scary reality. If you don't allow God to develop you in the private, hidden places of obscurity, and you instead want to speed up the process and seek a platform, the sin and dirt of your soul will come out later. God will graciously crush and prune the sin out of his saints. The only question is, Will you allow him to do it in private before you have the recognition of man? Or will it happen publicly because you rush the process to gain a platform before your character developed properly? And Jesus, he didn't seek fame or recognition. Jesus didn't remove himself from trials. Jesus didn't return insults with retaliation. Jesus didn't even defend himself. He embraced suffering. He embraced the way of the lamb. And this is opposed to the way of the world, which author and former pastor Eugene Peterson describes as the way of the dragon. Here's a quote from a book literally called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. We choose, we follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or we allow or, or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. And so I don't know what this looks like for you, but we follow the way of the meek lamb who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So in your workplace, in your school, in your family, in your circle of friends, the way of the lamb doesn't seek glory or boast. The way of the lamb doesn't seek self-preservation, doesn't use others for selfish gain, doesn't retaliate or lie or cheat or gossip or betray. So as you do some reflection, 
Where might you be resorting to the way of the dragon in your own life? As apprentices to Jesus, we are to follow the humble example of the lamb who is crushed before he was crowned. Now, as the lamb, Jesus was humble and meek, and he had this posture as he went to the slaughter. Here's our next point. Behold the sacrificial lamb. There are three key things that I want to point out here, three kind of sub-points. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the daily sacrifices made in the temple, and the Passover. So, the sacrificial uh, system of the Old Testament. This was established by God, and it foreshadowed the coming of Christ as the perfect sacrifice. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, uh, the priest would sacrifice bulls and goats for the sins of the people. He would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple to meet with God. And he would also, during this day, uh, put his hands on an Azazel goat, or you might know it as a scapegoat, and symbolically place the sins of the entire community of Israel, of the people, on this goat, send it out into the wilderness, and symbolically demonstrating that this goat uh, has taken away the sins much in the same way that God has forgiven them of their sin. And so they would do this year after year. But in Hebrews 10, here's what we read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Cue Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, Eight verses later, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so as the Lamb of God, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity because he is both eternal and sinless. Therefore, here's the logic. Because Christ is eternal, his one-time sacrifice is sufficient for sins past, present, and future. And because Christ was the spotless lamb of God, he was an untainted sacrifice. Jesus is the eternally perfect sacrifice for sins. We're no longer under the Old Testament sacrificial system. Amen. Now get this. There were also daily sacrifices of lambs that would take place in the temple in Jerusalem every day. Every morning and evening, a lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people according to Exodus 29. So you can go there if you want to check it out. What's interesting, though, is that the time of Jesus' death on the cross corresponded to the exact time they were doing the evening sacrifice of the lamb in, like, each day. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence here that Jesus was slaughtered as a sacrificial lamb on the same time, at the same time as the lamb would be sacrificed in the evening. Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. Finally, the Passover. The night before Jesus was crucified, he sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper, and you're going to hear more about this as well um, on the meal next week. I feel like I'm like dipping my toes into like every single one of the Behold uh, sermons, but we'll leave that one to Brad, I think. Um, but let me just give you a bit of a sneak peek, all right? Like here's the trailer, kind of like whet your appetite. Um, so the Last Supper is where we get our cues for communion, right? Now, if you've been to Next Step, I'm about to just like literally take the notes from Next Step on communion and go through it. You should still sign up for Next Step if you're looking to get plugged in, though. But here we go. Matthew 26, 
verses 26 to 29. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But the fascinating thing is that communion doesn't have its roots in Jesus' institution of it, but in the Passover meal that Israel would take year after year to remember their salvation from Egyptian slavery. Now, if you don't know the story, God's people were enslaved to Egypt for 430 years, years of oppression. And God heard the cry of his people. And on the night before God delivers his people out of slavery, he instructs them to slaughter a lamb and place the blood on their door frames in order for them to be saved as an angel of death came over the land that night. We see God pursuing his people, providing the means for their salvation. And in a very tangible sense, the lamb died instead of the firstborn son of the household because they were passed over on the basis of the blood of the lamb. On the night before they were saved and brought out of Egypt, they were then instructed to eat the lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread as they were prepared to flee. So after God had delivered his people out of Egypt, the Israelites were then instructed to to celebrate and observe this Passover meal once a year to remind them of God's goodness, to remind them that God had acted to save them because we so easily forget. This meal was a tangible reminder for all participating that they belonged to God, that they were his people, and that he had acted in order to save them. But it wasn't just a reminder of what God had done. It was, but this meal was pointing to something, right? It was foreshadowing. It was a foretaste of deliverance, of something to come. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so, here's the crazy thing. All of this Old Testament imagery of being saved by the Lamb was pointing towards Jesus. And just as God's people in Egypt had sat down to have a meal on the night before the saving act of God, so the disciples were sitting down with Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, which would be God's saving act. And they have a meal. And did I mention that the Last Supper took place during the Passover feast? And guess what else? Jesus was scourged and crucified on the day of the Passover sacrifice. According to the Hebrew calendar, the priests would inspect and prepare the lambs for slaughter in the morning of the 14th day of the first month and begin sacrificing them in the afternoon. Jesus was crucified on this very day in the Hebrew calendar. Coincidence? I think not. I think messianic fulfillment. So Jesus is taking all of this Old Testament imagery and applying it to himself. So when Jesus then says to his disciples, eat this bread, drink this cup in remembrance of me, he's saying, I'm the true Passover lamb. You know that meal you've been having year after year for hundreds of years celebrating deliverance from Egypt? Yeah, that's me. Like this was radical. Like like this was nuts. This was a claim for divinity. (laughs) Um, Jesus gets crucified the next day, right? As the Passover lamb. Rather than deliverance from Egyptian slavery, it's deliverance from sin. 
deliverance from spiritual death, covered by the blood of the Lamb. So we are to follow the humble example of the Lamb who was crushed before he was crowned. Here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus, you will endure crushing. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Peter, the disciple, says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Man, we've got it pretty easy here in the West, but man, if you just take like a look at the world watch list of the most persecuted countries around the world, North Korea, China, Iran, Afghanistan, Yemen, the list goes on. Man, our brothers and sisters around the world, they are enduring crushing like we haven't seen before here. And they're remaining faithful to Christ because he's worth it. So here, we've got it pretty comfortable, but be prepared if you follow Jesus faithfully to endure hatred to endure insults, hardships, misunderstanding, false accusations, demonic attack, perhaps even job loss if you remain true to the faith. Nothing stays the same forever, who knows. But what are we to do? To follow the example of the lamb, to return hate with love and to live sacrificially. Jesus says in John 15, 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Maybe the pushback is like, okay, come on, that's the context of like, I'm the vine, that's talking about the branches. That's like talking about Christian love together. Okay, what about love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you, right? We live in the midst of a culture of outrage and entitlement to which sacrificial love is the antidote. Christ calls us to follow his example of sacrificial love of one another. So what might it look like for you to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others? To return hate with love. Jesus is the meek lamb of God. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God and yet he is also the victorious lamb of God. Behold the, victor the victorious lamb. Um, I wanna show you a photo here or, or uh, uh, it's a piece of art. Um, of a lamb here, um, and it's Christ as a bound lamb. So here we are, uh, ready to be slain, right? So you can see that it's kind of tied up uh, around the hooves, and this is a lamb ready to be slain. Remember the words of Isaiah 53 with regards to this lamb, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, slaughtered. Now let's go to the next picture. Here's another uh, artist's depiction of Jesus as the lamb. This is the same lamb who was slain, but now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father. Admittedly a little freaky, hey? Like if I went to the local farm and saw this, like I'd be running for the hills. Like I would be really freaked out, right? Seven eyes, seven horns. Um, and yet this is the lamb we worship. Um, now this is, the, this is the lamb of Revelation 5. Um, Seven horns, seven eyes, biblically speaking. Uh, the number seven is a number of completion and perfection. 
Uh, now, according to my study, uh, seven horns, what do those represent? Great or perfect, complete power. Seven eyes, what does that represent? Uh, complete knowledge throughout all the earth, complete or perfect knowledge. And in Revelation 5, which is apocalyptic literature, we've got to be careful of how we interpret things in that. Uh, it's apocalyptic literature being seen as a vision by John. We see this scene unfold where an angel is in the heavenly throne room and God the Father sitting on the throne holding a scroll. And the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one's able to open the scroll in all of heaven or earth or under the earth, it says, except the lamb who was slain this lamb. He comes up to the throne, takes the scroll from the hand of he who is seated on the throne, and he's able to open it. The scroll is opened up, and perfect justice is carried out in the world. The lamb is both meek and just. He endured the cross, and in the same breath, he will judge the living and the dead. Yes, Jesus, the Lamb of God, atoned for the sins of the world, but the blood of the Lamb only covers those who give their allegiance to him. He does not let sin go unpunished for those who are outside of him. The Lamb is good. The Lamb is just. The Lamb is judge. Now, I want to read you a quote by Dane Ortland where he talks about the wrath of God and the mercy of God. This is what he says. The wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the other is held up. Rather, the two rise and fall together. The more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all that is evil both around us and within us, the more robust our felt understanding of his mercy. So in other words, if Christ is truly a good and just judge, he won't let evil go unchecked. there must be a consequence. But because of the mercy and the love of Christ, he died in our place for our sin. He took the punishment and endured the wrath of God against evil and became that perfect sacrifice for us. And yet, he also wouldn't be loving if he coerced us or forced us to receive his gift of grace. So he offers the gift of salvation, of eternal life, and we must receive it by faith and by choosing to worship him who accomplished what we could not. He alone is worthy. And here's what we see in Revelation 5, verse 11 to 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the lamb that we worship. Now what does Jesus promise to those who worship him? What does Christ grant to those who follow not the way of the dragon, but the way of the lamb? Well, as Jesus said in Revelation 2.10 to the church in Smyrna, 
Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It is worth it to follow Jesus. I don't know where you guys are at. Maybe for some of you, you've been following Jesus a long time, but you're ready to tap out. You're like, man, this is getting hard. It's just easier. You just want to enjoy like some, some earthly pleasure or just like a sense of like peace without like the struggle. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're a little bit younger, you're, you're counting the cost, trials, pain, hardship, and you're wondering if you should keep going. I want to tell you to keep going. Jesus is worth it. He's Lord. Jesus is at the finish line, holding that crown of eternal life, cheering you on with the cloud of witnesses saying you can do it. You can do it. Endure faithfully. Endure unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus was crushed before he was crowned, and we too as sheep will endure crushing in this world before we're crowned with glory. But did you know, according to 2 Timothy 2, <laughs> that we're actually going to rule and reign with Christ? Like, this is in the Bible. We're going to rule and reign with him, crowned with the gift of eternal life with God himself in his presence. No more suffering, no more evil, no more pain, but with the one who willingly went to the cross, died in our stead, became our Passover lamb, and so as I conclude, let me share a story as a form of invitation to you. Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, he once shared of a day in 1857, uh, a day or two before he was going to preach at the Crystal Palace. And you know, he went into, went into this church and just began like testing the acoustics, figuring out like where he's going to place his pulpit. And so as he's testing the acoustics, much like I guess I did like before we started here, um, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's this guy up in the rafters, just a worker. He like just gets shook, right? Here's these words. They just like pierce his soul. Felt like just conviction from heaven. Felt like his, his sins were like exposed just by this one line. He goes home goes through a, a season of like spiritual struggle, gives his life to Jesus, and he shares this story on his deathbed to a friend who then relays it to Charles Spurgeon. He found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. So my question for you is, as you behold the Lamb of God, what do you see? Scripture shows us that this Lamb was a meek servant who willingly gave up his life in sacrifice for those who will receive him to then rule and reign with him for eternity in his presence. Behold the meek lamb. Behold the sacrificial lamb. Behold the victorious lamb. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you got off your throne and you came for us because you loved us. Jesus, thank you that you chose not the way of the dragon, but the way of the lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that you went meekly, you went humbly to the cross, you endured hardship, you endured betrayal. God, you endured physical torture and pain and death. God, that you died the death that we couldn't. Jesus, that, uh, Lord, because of your blood, we're covered. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, on the basis of your good work, we're justified before the Father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. 
And God, I pray that we would learn to follow in your example, enduring crushing, living meekly, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Lord, thank you that you are the victorious lamb. Lord, that sin does not go unchecked. You are both the lion and the lamb, as Revelation 5 also tells us. You're coming to judge. We thank you that you do so out of love. And so God, I just pray for any of us this morning who are maybe feeling, I don't know, apathetic, or maybe we're feeling discouraged, or maybe, God, we, we've just been, we've been flirting with sin. God, I just pray that by your grace, you would just allow us to behold you, Jesus, in your beauty and your goodness. We will look full in your wonderful face. Allow the things of this world to grow strangely dim. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. And God, we give you all the honor and the praise and the glory. To you it is forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.